Hey there, it's Brandon. I hope everyone had a great holiday season, spent some time with their family and friends. Cote, myself, and Matt Ray, we all decided to take some time off, so hopefully there was no late-breaking enterprise tech news that we missed out on. But we did want to leave you guys with something to listen to over the break, so we're going to put in here a little bonus episode of our Exegesis podcast. In this episode, I spent some time talking to Andy Land, who's from the CISO Executive Network, and we talked a little bit about security and maybe how CISOs and developers could work better together and you know build a more secure world. I think it's a very upbeat episode. It's a good way to end the year. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you want to subscribe to Exegesis, just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com and you'll see where you can subscribe to our paid podcasts. And of course, we'd love to hear from you guys on Slack, so please join the Slack channel. I've had a great time this year giving out stickers to everyone who gave me their address. I'm starting to see pictures of stickers on Twitter. So that's been a lot of fun for me, and it's been a lot of fun for Cote and Matt Ray, and we really enjoy doing the podcast. So check out this episode. Let me know if you like it, and we'll talk to you in the new year. Andy, it's Christmas time, so the most important thing that we have to answer is, what are you getting your seven-year-old daughter for Christmas? That's a great question, Brandon. And you know me, I, I, I leave that all to my wife. So that's the first principle, make sure the wife does it. But not trying to be sexist here, I, she wants this Barbie horse that actually moves with Barbie on it. Like a I know real horse, like a motorized horse? Yes, yes, that's what she wants. Is it like remote control? Like the thing uh, I don't think or? it's that sophisticated, but I'd love to know that. I mean, you know, I, we're all subject to advertising. Basically, she saw it while watching uh, Disney Channel and uh, Dad, I got to have that. So that's what uh, is coming this year. Well, that, that sounds, it really doesn't sound that exciting to me. But I will say I'm excited because my son is also seven years old. But this year he asked for Nintendo Switch. And this is the first year... I took over buying the big Santa present because I want a Nintendo Switch and I want to play with the Nintendo Switch. So, you know, people talk about this when you're when you're being a parent because I think the early years, like when it's just like these toys and these plastic toys, like two, three, four, it's like there's not a lot of excitement in those gifts. The <laughs> child is excited, but I don't I don't think as a parent you care at all. Uh, but oh, come I'm on, on the Lego, the Lego, you know, you got excited the about Lego the Lego. Was good. I mean, that was probably the best of the early childhood toys. But now that we're full on into video games, which I know is, is bad. Like I know as a parent, you're not too, but like I'm all in and I want to play Mario Kart as much <laughs> as he does. So we've had this uh, in the closet now for like three months because I bought it early because I didn't want to make, I want to make sure we get it. So uh, we're going to see how it goes on uh, on December 25th if he's excited. So I don't know. I mean, the horse thing, I hope that's that's exciting. I don't know. I may send Zoe over because I got to tell you, she was a big fan of all these Pokemon Go. She's uh, Minecraft. Uh, I don't even know what the latest one is, but whatever the latest one is, she finds it. Dragon City, I think, is one she plays. She's, yeah. she's pretty into the, the video stuff. She's uh, way ahead of me, of course. Well, that's good. That's what we want to – what's on here. Well, yeah, send her over, and we'll, we'll get her and Wyatt playing some uh, – some Mario Kart right away. Well, listen, you know, obviously by now people have noticed uh, Michael Cote and Matt Ray. They are off on Christmas vacation. So I have taken over the feed with and invited our uh, fearless co-host on this week, Mr. Andy Land. And we're going to talk about a topic that we love, security. <laughs> and the reason, Andy, I wanted you to come on is that, I, as I know, a couple years ago you've, uh, you left the vendor side after being in security for how long? How long were you actually – Working in security, doing product management and marketing stuff. Well, it's kind of frightening, but I think it was about 15 years of, uh, as you know, slugging it out 
mostly on the identity and access management side, but did a lot of work with data security, some with app security, some with cloud security, but pretty broad, broad based. But as you know, spent a lot of time slugging it out in identity and access management. Yes. And we'll, and we'll talk about that. And then this, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago, you, you, you took, took the plunge into like a whole nother thing. And so why don't you tell us exactly what you're doing now? Sure. Uh, during my time on the dark side, as we, we like to think about it, as, as the vendors, the dark, dark side. The dark, dark side. Uh, as you know, at, at big vendors, we and you know, having worked together, we sponsored lots of different kinds of events and roundtables to try to meet the right folks. Well, I spoke at several of those, and I, you know, most of them were frankly kind of disappointing. I got to know a group called the CISO Executive Network through speaking at it. And again, when they advertised it or you know, we were doing it, I thought, well, this is another one of those BS things that I show up, there'll be one uh, chief information security officer in the room, and then that's on the marquee. He leaves after five minutes, and you know, nobody else there uh, that you know, is what you thought. But when I went into the room with these guys, there was actually about 10 to 12. These are small roundtables, uh, 10 to 12 chief information security officers. And it was a very intimate format, very detailed discussion as a product guy. I mean, you're hearing every problem that th- these chief information security officers have. And I was like, wow, I, I don't, I've you know, landed in heaven here. How could you be in a better room than this as a vendor? And then you got your, you know, at the time, 20 minutes of fame. You got to give a quick, think of it like TED Talk kind of presentation, uh, not meant to be like a product pitch, but it was just, it was just great. And I got to know the two founders and I immediately started, you know, you know how you have those moments in time in your life. I was like, wow, this is the most interesting thing I've seen in a long time. Started talking to the founders and, you know, very fortunate that it worked out. They were interested in expanding their network from 11 cities. uh, And I came on board about a year and a half ago, as you mentioned, to expand the network. And we've grown it to 17 chapters over the last uh, year and a half. Yeah, and what I kind of think that you've done is, you know, for our audience is that, you know, there's these DevOps, DevOps days, if I could say, where basically, you know, groups come together and they basically share information about what they're doing and sometimes vendors present and things like that. And I think, while it's certainly structured a little differently, I think you've kind of hit on, I think of the CISO executive network kind of doing the same thing, bringing communities of CISOs together where they can talk about the issues facing them, and then you'll hear a little bit from vendors and kind of create a community. And I'd say, you know, I was trying to think um, as, as I prepared for this, like, what do you, you've probably been to like 60 meetings with like CISOs in the last year and a half? Is that right? Is it even more? Or? Yeah. Well, since, as you know, I moderate the, the actual chapters. So I start chapters and then I moderate them, meaning I get to know the CISOs. I'm there as the moderated leader of the, the roundtable. So there are four hour roundtables that we're having, you know, like you said, detailed discussions. Uh, so I, I think this year, just in the chapters that I moderate, I think I did like 50, you know, moderated discussions, like you said. So I'm just talking to CISOs day in and day out. That's hearing their problems, hopefully trying to help them solve the problems, because that's really why this group exists. It's great for us. We all like to gripe. You know, we all gripe sure. about our job. We go home and never. Jo- not jo- me. <laughs> not me. I've never done that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, you know, when you when you get uh, when you're doing something like this, it's interesting because the idea is you need to get the solutions. And so a big part of what we do is we have what we call a closed door session with our members where it's just the members and us. And we go very deep on the topics at hand to try to, you know, get the conclusions because people came to this roundtable searching for something. And I think you mentioned another key word. It is a community. So there, it's two levels of community. There's a local community. So you're part of like for us here, we have an Austin San Antonio chapter that covers both cities together. So you're part of that community. But if you need outreach to other CISOs, we can connect you with CISOs across the United States and Canada. So you're part of a bigger community also. So it's like a multi-level community, the local plus the kind of national level. Nice. So 
you know, the reason I wanted you to kind of set that all up was, you know, as you kind of said, the, the closed door session. And, and as we uh, heard at the AWS keynote, I think uh, Warner, the CTO of, of uh, AWS, you know, he kind of ended his long presentation around saying something about speaking to really all developers or, you know, development community about like, you know, we're all security in charge of security now, all of developers in charge of security, which has been like a topic you and I have discussed many times, like, and for the world to get more secure, it needs to move upstream, right? The people building the applications need to be as smart about security as the people potentially protecting the applications. And, you know, certainly we've seen over the last three or four years that operations is sort of, you know, for better or for worse, right? In a lot of ways, there's a bit of movement to really merge development operations, the DevOps movement, things like that. And I think the time is right um, for that same mentality to happen uh, in security. But even as uh, he was closing out his keynote, uh, he was in Las Vegas. It was at the Venetian where you, know, you and I have been and lost <laughs> Way money. too many times. We left money there. Um, and so you know, I just happened to know is like we've also – because we've usually been out there is like down the street. I can't remember which hotel. I think it's Caesars. Uh, they always have the Gardner Identity and Access Management, which is like one of the foundational parts of security. And I always think it's funny that the conferences like kind of take – uh, take place at the same time, but nobody like really crosses over. There's just like they're in separate hotels. And so what I, I thought we would do today is I want you, especially the closed door kind of session is like kind of unveil like what is, I mean, we know what chief information security officer means. I think everyone has a general understanding of like what that role is. But like what I want to do is kind of like penetrate that a little bit and figure out when we're talking about security, because that's a big word in itself, and a lot of people don't understand just the facets of like what goes into security, right? It's not just about finding a virus or malware. There's a lot of other things. So I want to tease this apart and hopefully bring – we'll see if we can do it. We'll bring some development uh, expertise and security expertise and see if we can merge that together. So let's start with like something kind of simple, right? Like when you're talking to these CISOs – and they're talking about their jobs, and they're griping about their jobs. What, what are they griping about? How do they describe their jobs to their peers and to other people? No, it, it, it makes sense, Brandon. I, I want to go back to what, follow up one thing you said, though, about the two conferences being in the same town, the identity one and the <laughs> yeah. developer one. Because something, you know, a good friend of ours here in town always says, what's the first thing a developer does when he builds an app? He right. builds a user table. Of course. As soon as he does that, We've messed it all up, yeah. right? And as soon as we put in our own password scheme, you know, username and password scheme into that application, we've kind of completely destroyed the idea of security. And so that's, you know, the very beginning. So what, when you say, what are the, you know, how does this tie back? What do the CISOs gripe about? Well, they gripe about that. They gripe about that they're a bolt-on. So that's the number one issue is that security is a bolt-on after the fact, and as you and I know, we've went in a lot of central management kind of tools in our career, which are, in essence, what? Bolt-ons to solve a problem, to centrally manage a network, centrally manage identities, whatever you want to centrally manage. But it's after the fact. And as soon as we go after the fact, as you know, the integration nightmare kicks in. We have to try to integrate all these things and try to make it work. And that's what you know, our CISOs are going through. I mean, their shortages today, their biggest issues are, one, they're probably not respected as they, much as they need to be in the organization. Uh, and we somewhat saw that with Equifax. Everybody was questioning uh, the CSO who was let go because she had a music degree. By the way, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, probably when she started her career, there was no cybersecurity degree. Right. And, and what's to say that she didn't have the experience over the last 20 years you know, I don't know the in-depth. I don't know her personally. I don't know the in-depth of what went on there. But my point is the scrutiny under which this occurred 
you know, you could see what happens when, when it goes bad. So one thing, you know, all of the CISOs are worried about when it goes bad, right? That's a bad day for them, right? You see, you see what kind of happens. Uh, they're worried about this connectivity, like you talked about, where uh, applications and services are getting built, particularly in the cloud, which I know your audience here very much cares about. Stuff's getting pushed to the cloud. Our CISOs have no idea that it's happening. Right. Uh, I think maybe pause there because that's, that's the thing is like, you know, we, I think a lot of us like almost take cloud kit, uh, computing as a given. Like this is what's, how it's going to work. And the benefits from a development and just deploying an app, I think are numerous. We don't have to talk about that. But I, I think that's a really key point, what you're saying there about if you're the one that when the, the breach happens, you're going to get attacked personally, like in the case of Equifax, like that, that, you know, and people are going to go after her background and say like, no, she's a music major. And just as a quick aside, right? Like when, back when I was forever ago, when I was interviewing, one of the things they would ask um, people coming in as in addition to like understanding if they like technology, they'd often ask people like if they like music, because a lot of people think like music, abstract thinking, and, you know, is a very, it has a very mathematical, uh, is a great background for technology. So, you know, right away we should say, that's just a good example about like, Hey, if you ask like an all-star developer, um, a lot of them will say they didn't study computer science. They said they studied philosophy right. and some started music. So that's just a creative, th- creative thinking right. is what so you're like looking why for. Why we like attack that person, you know, we would never attack like a software architect for being like someone into music. Right. So that, I think that's an important thing to go after, but kind of like, you know, I, what I want everyone to kind of like put their, you know, uh, feel the pain, if you will, is like, okay, that's great that everyone's using the cloud. It's you look at it totally different if you're the one that is responsible to make sure that none of the data in none of these applications in the cloud is going to be breached, right? You think of that job much differently than if it's something like, oh, it's just so easy for me to log on and use it because you know they're coming for you, right? And and I think this comes back to why oftentimes I think CISOs are kind of portrayed as sort of like they have the head in the stand, they haven't embraced the cloud as much is because, hey, if I'm asked to secure something that I don't have control over directly, and you think about your life, right. if, I, if I tell you you're <laughs> responsible for something that you can't control, that is not a good feeling, right? No one comes to work to say, I'm totally at the mercy of this other cloud provider, right? And I think that's, so I think, you know, to me, I don't know, I guess I'm, you know, like to hear your thoughts on it, but like, that's where I think the CISO mindset really starts. And that's why maybe this job is different than other technology jobs. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, one thing that's very clear in this world is folks put stuff in AWS or the other, you know, big clouds out there. I'm just going to use AWS since they're the, you know, 600, we, you know, we, everyone the, knows the 600 pound gorilla. So they're putting stuff out there. I would ask your, your audience, do they even know what level of security AWS out of the box provides? What's agreed to? Because I got to tell you, we've had AWS in our network talk to our members, and they believe there's a very clear line, but they believe almost none of the folks understand what that clear line is. So that's a big problem right there. But by the way, when it's your it's your data, no matter what, it doesn't. Once you just because you push your your data to the AWS cloud, if it gets breached, it's your problem. There, you, there may be some contractual stuff that you have in there, but you probably didn't because, frankly, you don't have the leverage that AWS has. They're going to write the contract the way they want it, and you're pretty much going to live to it unless you're one of the top five or ten brands in the world. If you're not those guys, frankly, you're living to whatever the standard agreement is, which means you better know what that agreement is and what they cover and what they don't. Because often I call it – and you've heard me say this before – bring your own security 
Because otherwise, you better be prepared to bring like privileged identity management, different encryption and data protection technologies, things like that, because they're not going to do all that for you. Now, some of that stuff, they're going to start to offer services, meaning more money, right? They're going to charge you. They're glad to offer you security services for a fee, which I don't blame them. I mean, it's fine to do that. But my point is, you guys got to really know that line. The other one that scares me is I think we and I talked about this uh, one time outside of uh, this is GitHub. A lot of codes flying around in there. Uh, There's a real question of how secure that is. I mean, there's been many incidences of intellectual property, other new applications and services being um, uh, breached on GitHub and it just being out in the open. That's a real problem. And that scares, that really scares our CISOs a lot is all these repositories were, you know, code that in essence is the intellectual property of the company. And that is their business scares them. Cause I don't know if you've seen a lot of what's happening with China, you know, us steels in a big fight with China where they believe their formulas were breached and stolen. China has built steel that looks exactly like what us steel does and is pumping it back into the U S market at what a fraction of the cost. So people that often say to me, they don't, they have stuff to secure because they don't have PII or, you know, health data. Oh yeah. You have something to secure. It's called your intellectual property. Somebody wants it. And that intellectual property, your guys, the guys that were, that are on this podcast, you know, podcast today, you're the ones building that intellectual property. So please secure it because right. if you don't, somebody wants it. I, I guarantee think, you that. And I think this is again, something that was talked about at AWS. And I think most of the cloud vendors, you know, I'll just speak for all of the cloud vendors. I'm sure they appreciate <laughs> that is that, you know, the solution that is discussed a lot is is really encryption, right? And it's not that, you know, encryption itself, I don't know, it's probably been around since like the dawn of time, since the dawn of mathematics. But, you know, kind of back to like, you know, how do developers help here, right? Is don't think of encryption as like this add-on thing you do after the fact, right? Like, and this is what I know it came up at the AWS keynote and I've seen other, you know, very similar pitches from other cloud vendors is that, as soon as you start to put data into the cloud, of really of any kind, I think the question needs to be, like, why wouldn't this be encrypted? Like, default, right. everything should be encrypted, right? There was a time, um, you know, at a way back in the day, right, where encryption really caused a lot of, you know, potential of overhead and you know, really slowed things down. You know, there was a time where people were like, oh, I can't, you know, use HTTPS for my email because it'd just be too slow. But those days are like long gone, right? right? Like there is. So, so kind of back to, I, I think the kind of rule run as a developer is, you know, you're, you're building out your, your data repository of whatever it is. It's the first, I mean, you can't say to yourself, like, I'll do the encryption later, right? Like, I think it's just like, it's, I, I would like it to be thought of like, I'll test the code later or I'll, you know, it's like things that you just really aren't even meeting the minimum bar, right? right? So don't, and I think this is, you know, I don't know, like to hear what the, uh, the CSIS have to say, but really, you know, the idea is like if at least by default, if everything is encrypted and then, you know, it's really comes down to like, where are you going to store your keys and what are the processes right. there? That's a much simpler problem that you can take to a CISO and every company can work out its own way of thinking about that than it is I have four or five different repositories. Um, they're all kind of data. Uh, they're all kind of different and no one has ever thought about how to encrypt them because at that point, everyone has to go back. The right. developers have to go back and I'm sure the product management teams and management is pushing on the 
for some new features. And that this is where you get into the case of like, well, everything can be pushed off. Shortcuts. And yeah, shortcuts. And these things are what open up the potential for breaches. So I don't know, like are do you guys talk a lot about data security and, and data yeah. encryption? Like, what are they thinking about it when they approach this problem? Yeah, we spent – it's funny. This The last series we just came off of was all about data protection. Um, and, and encryption You know, clearly came up. One of the things we joked about is it's not the silver bullet, but it's obviously like a, a baseline, uh, which is really important. And I think something to think about is the, for the audience out there is – Often you want real data when you're testing your apps. I mean, everybody wants as real a data as possible, and that makes perfect sense. But there are a lot of techniques out there that you can utilize, redacted data, mass data, tokenized data. All those are a simple way to saying whatever that data looks like, it's been switched to where you can't get the real data, but the application still can process it like it is real data, which is important because all the developer cares about is can I, can I test the application in a way that's realistic? And so you, why do you want real data? Because that's mo most realistic. But I'd say these other techniques are very useful for doing that. And then you're still securing the data. Uh, like you said, when you're actually storing the data, you want it fully encrypted, you know, 100% uh, encrypted. So I think you're on to something there. That's an area where our, our CISOs are obviously very worried. I mean, again, anytime data is moving, it's in rest or in motion and it's not encrypted, that, that's an opening, right? right? So I think, you know, a couple of things we can, you know, we'll, I don't know how many rules we'll have, probably have a thousand rules we can have this, but like rule one, right? It would be like, all we, just encrypt everything. When you're going into building an application for the first time, go in knowing that I'm going to encrypt it. Because when you go with, meet with your security team, whether it be your CISOs, you know, the first line security managers, whatever, and you say, everything's encrypted, I have these keys. And then to your point, what you're saying, and you know what, when we do testing, we built in a process to either go get tokenized data, or we know how we're going to create it, right? Then, right. I mean, the conversation, I mean, you're starting at such a healthy point, right? It's like any relationship, right? You're coming to the table with stuff that really helps them versus, you know, <laughs> just dumping a flaming turd on there. Because I think this is how- I don't, like, I don't like that visual, but I, but I but get it. You know it. what I'm saying, right? Like no one wants to get an email like, hey, we have a new application and it's up and running and no one knows anything. No one knows where the data is stored. If they know where it is, they're like, nope. We've never uh, encrypted it. We've right. never thought about it. And then people are just like, oh, that's a good idea. So now, again, you know, we talk a lot about with developers like technical debt, right? Like we all know the architecture and, you know, libraries need to be updated and just everything, right? That this, I would just create, you know, this is another form of technical debt or security debt, right? Like if you don't do it now, if you are successful, if your application is successful in any way, you're going to have to go back and do it. And it's going to be so much more painful. Uh, I think, you know, we touched on a little bit about... Well, let me you, jump to one, one quick thing there, Brandon. You've you mentioned like three times, but I, I want to mention it one more time. Own your keys. Yes. When you, that, that, that is own like, your, if you want no, no other rule today, when you encrypt stuff, you should start with that. Own your keys. Because I know some of the cloud providers are wanting to do, own both sides of that, yeah. right? Which is dangerous. I mean, you they have the data, they have the keys, you know, well, I think it's. I I know the cloud providers will. And clearly, they they let you take the keys, right? And I think to some extent, I think you're seeing the movement as they they, they kind of they want you to take the keys. The problem uh, is, you know, it is the responsibility, right? So this kind of comes back to the reason I think cloud providers are like will offer both is they know, and there's always this moment, right? And I think this is like in your own life, right? If you use a password manager or you just have physical keys, right? <laughs> like. 
if you forget the password to your password manager or you lose a key, it is a total pain in the ass. Right. And so I think the concern um, that people always have is like, well, you know, if I lose the keys, then or if I if I'm AWS or any cloud vendor and I'm providing some service to a customer and they've lost the keys and we're just sitting with a bunch of encrypted data and they can't do anything, like there's just going to be hell to pay. There's right. Be, you know, everyone is going to be mad. But I I always come back to like I'd rather have that problem than the problem of you know hundred million, five hundred million records exposed. Right. And and this kind of gets to like I, I don't know what are people doing right now. Like what if when these CISOs are doing it and there's lots of different solutions out there to manage various private keys. Are they talking about solutions that they like and ways that they like to manage uh, these private keys? You know, I, I, this series, I was surprised. We I, obviously everyone agrees own your keys. I didn't, you know, I didn't hear anything new or different than what the common stuff is out there. I think we spent more time in this series. The, the big problem on data, you know, for this side was encryption, but a lot of our CISOs, it's a more simple problem of where is all the data? Right. And you guys are generating more of it quicker than we can keep up with it. So the real problem is I, how do I find the data? Then how do I classify the data in a way that, you know, we know the rules around it? Because remember, a big part of the CISO role is setting the policy, setting the, you know, the in essence, the risk posture, right. which it should be because the company has said we have this certain risk posture around everything we do. So then the policy should get set. Now, sometimes it's easy because if you're a healthcare institution, HIPAA is going to tell you you have to do certain things. If you do credit cards, PCI is going to tell you you have to do certain things. So, right? so regulatory will dictate a lot of it. But if you're in a less regulated industry, the CISO's major role in his team is setting up all that policy and then trying to, to the best of their ability, enforce it. But again, here's the problem. Business does what it wants to do. A lot of your guys on this podcast today, the business is saying create a mobile app or create uh, an app in the cloud, create something new for the business so that I go make money. They're kind of thinking about that from how do I make money, not how do I secure it? Because I kind of joke, go back in time, you were, you were joking about uh, th there's that tension between uh, building the new stuff and you know building security. I bet when most of these these uh, big properties that were we've seen breached over the last few years, LinkedIn, others, I bet they their, their security posture goes back to almost when they like had ten thousand users. Yeah. Because what happened is they put in a security posture that probably worked for ten thousand users. They had no idea they were going to grow to millions and millions of users. But along the way, what became important was features. Oh, we have to do this. We have to do that. We have to do that. And I, I bet you it's smart people over there, but I'm sure they just thought the security stuff's fine. It's working. No problem. Don't worry about it. And nobody really thought that much about it. And that's the problem. When What happens is when you think about it's on the other side. When you're breached, it's too late. Absolutely. So that's my big another big message is like, Go back and take a look, think about this, and, and get to know your security folks, because that's one of the big problems today, too, is often these are very disconnected worlds. And I know, like, in the, your world of DevOps, you're, you know, you're trying to bring the world of development and operations together. I think we've all heard a word, secure DevOps. How do we bring that group together, too? If the three of you guys are working well together, trust me, a lot of these problems will get eliminated. Absolutely. And I think that goes to, you know, the next area of security that... Frankly, no one ever wants to talk about, but I think it's you know, equally important. And this is the world of audit. Like oh, probably yeah. like the most misunderstood group of people in all of technology are, I think, the IT auditors. And so let's start with, you know, I'll kind of lay out a little bit like what is an IT auditor? And, and what they are typically doing is these are the people that are often reading legislation that is written by, you know, governments or organizations. And 
uh, and it will come to sur- uh, surprise no one on this podcast that when legislators, lawyers, like, write uh, uh, things, they really have no idea about technology. So so you get the, these very vague, legalistic written things about, like, you need to protect personally identifiable data, right, or information, PII. But then it's the role of the auditors to then start to, like, take that legislation, that text, right, and figure out, like, what does it actually mean to protect these things, right? And they create, you know, a set of rules around and try and start to translate, like, okay, this means that I can't have SSH access on these machines, or I have to have a certain kind of patches on these kinds of machines. So that's what they start to do. And I, I tend to think that they, unfortunately, I mean, there are a lot of solutions, they often end up writing the stuff in spreadsheets, right? And now the spreadsheet is where I think, developers and operations often get involved is like they're given um, after the fact, usually, right? There's like an auditor shows up and they've never met him before. Sometimes they don't even like know who they are. And someone sends them this spreadsheet of, of just what looks like just craziness to them. It's like this <laughs> arbitrary, uh, at least looks arbitrary around of what it is, right? What these different rules are. And so, and then, you know, obviously the operations and development teams are then kind of responsible to like show that they've met these rules, which then typically generates like, like tons of log, log files that no one can really understand. Right. right. So this is the state of what it is. And it's no one, I would say no one is happy in this scenario. The auditor's not happy. Uh, the developer's not happy and the legislators, like I, they've probably moved on to something else. They've probably right. forgotten about it, but they, in, in, but in the, in the sense of like people are worried about it. So, you know, let me start with kind of like how are the CISOs looking at audit? Like what do they think of audit and how do they think about addressing audit within their organization? Right. Well, definitely one thing you brought up the legal landscape. In our, our roundtables, we work with big cybersecurity law firms who provide us kind of input. And one of the things that always comes out every single time, and this is like what makes our life, your guys on, on here and my CISO's life, uh, hell, is this reasonableness test. Every piece of legislature said you should do, you know, the the protections that are quote unquote reasonable, and then the, all the arguing at that point when things go bad is what was reasonable, right? And then and that and what to your point, audits trying to figure that out. That's what the, the spreadsheets you're talking about and everything they're interrogating you about is them trying to understand what is quote unquote reasonable. I mean, we are starting to get some more prescriptive. I don't know if you've if the folks on here have heard about the New York. DFS law, it's very dictatorial of what things you have to do, including it says you have to have a CISO. It really only affects the financial services industry right now uh, that that operates in New York, which is pretty much every company in financial services. <laughs> which is all of finance. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so it's a big deal. I mean, you guys may know, and I know this is going to affect everybody on here, the looming GDPR, yep. the big European. If you're doing operations in Europe and you're using any level of PII, and you better go look very tightly at what PII is defined as a GDPR. Because it's much greater. We're very willy-nilly or loosey-goosey, whatever you want to call it, call it in the United States with our personal data. Our view on personal data is once I get the chocolate bar and I give you all my personal data, you can do whatever you want with it. In Europe, they believe a citizen's data is their property. Much different view of the world. So if you're building applications and services that are going to be connected over there, you you better be careful. And here's where your auditors come in. 
they're going to audit against this stuff, right? They're going to audit. They're going to try to interpret GDPR, the New York DFS, all the state rules. Like you said, it's not just national. There's every single state in the United States has its own set of uh, uh, regulations and rules, which means you right now, if you get breached, you have you have to note if you operate in all 50 states, you would have to do breach notification and they could be different in 50 different states. So the problem is, like you said, your auditors are trying to figure all that out. They're trying to help audit against a set of controls. Like the, again, go back to CISO set policies, which are then you know uh, broken down into sets of controls that they put in place. Some of those controls are process controls. Some of those controls are technology. Like we will buy a piece of technology to do certain things um, like, uh, you know, like vulnerability management. Um, we buy a we buy a product potentially to go out and scan for all of our vulnerabilities. Well, then that's the point where again these two worlds interconnect. I can tell you as a CISO all the vulnerabilities I want you to go fix. The auditor is going to jam me on some of those, right? Some of the right. bigger ones, probably not all of them, because as we know there could be thousands of vulnerabilities. Not all of them are as high level as the others. Of course, all it takes is one smart bad guy figuring out one and you know yeah, it becomes it becomes really important but the auditor is going to take that list if you will and say okay see so here's all the vulnerabilities the guys on, on on the podcast today you're going to be sitting there going wow i get thrown this huge list of stuff to go fix that wasn't in my day job i'm supposed to go build cool new features now i got to close all these security gaps well you know why am i having to do this right that's where we get a lot of the problems and the auditors are all they're trying to do is is make sure that process is working because at the end of the day, when it's not working, that's what gets reported to upper management is that we've got these 10 things that aren't working. And then the hammer comes down on right. all of this. I like to call it, it becomes like a PowerPoint slide. It gets <laughs> presented and then like everyone starts freaking out. And I think, you know, so we've seen like there's some areas here to be optimistic about that, you know, certainly the movement of DevOps and, you know, I'll just use you know, Matt Ray's not on today, but like I think if you were here, you'd say like, you know, Chef has a whole product called Inspect, right, which is all built around going out and enforcing these different policies. And so, you know, for those people that have, you know, embraced, you know, fully automated configuration management, um, what they do, and certainly they're not alone, is, you know, they will let you take some of these rules and actually go to the next level and actually codify them and say, well, yeah, like when I provision a new server, you know, the rule is it can't have like this kind of SSH access. And that way, when any of the times those new servers are provisioned, right, they don't have it. And then, you know, you can envision a world where you get to where the auditors, these rules just become, you know, or actually become codified so that like, yeah, a new rule comes in. It's not a big deal. Because right. We just update the rules. And then as we all know, in the DevOps world, we treat our servers, right, as, as cattle, not pets. We just kill them all <laughs> and we just reprovision them all. And that new rule is put out there, right? So again, like that's a real healthy dynamic around, hey, I'm used to, like I've done the work up front and I'm totally prepared. Just like we're prepared to find bugs, like all the time. We find bugs in software all the time. We fix them. We update the software. Just like, you know, we should kind of view, I think, legislation and, you know, regulation kind of the same way. It's like there's always going to be another rule. And, right. and then someone's going to find, exploit something, and that's going to create another rule. And if you have the mindset of I have the tools, you know, to go out and take those rules and start to codify them, um, I can quickly address that. And again, it's just part of my job, just like, you know, encrypting the data is part of my job. But again, if you don't do this up front or if you're just shocked to see someone show up with a list of things, uh, then yeah, it, it is a total, you know, in that case, like you're getting the pot, you're getting the turd, the flaming turd, as I like <laughs> to call it. Like you're getting the, and you have to put in all the, your backlog, like a million different user stories to fix things that, you know, that really frustrate you. So, 
I think, again, come back to like, don't, and then, you know, you said it at the beginning, but you know, the auditors, I mean, I won't say all of them, but they are actually very reasonable people. And right. You talk to them. And sometimes there is a case where they just don't understand. Like there's some new technology that hasn't been explained and somebody's being asked to do something, you know, that, uh, that people look at, like, this doesn't make any sense. And if you take the time to go meet with them and even go back to them and say, listen, what you're trying to do is audit for this risk. Right. And I'll help you do it because this is really the right rule well, to Well, that do. boils down to what you just said. It's, it's risk. There, you, you need to understand what the risk is and, and audit to the risk because you were asking, um, uh, you know, kind of – I'm glad to hear your folks are – this is starting to be built into the, the way they think about the world because on my side of the world, what I think the CISOs would say is when an audit finding comes in – it's like whack-a-mole. You guys have probably all played that game. It literally, oh, we got a privileged identity problem. We've got too many developers or too many server admins that are using you know, common passwords or the same access or too much access rights. Let's go buy a new tool or let's go you know, you know, build a new process around that because it's a big audit finding that's going to get reported all the way up, potentially, frankly, all the way to the board. And like Brandon was joking around, but this is true. It is a world of PowerPoint, unfortunately. It's these you know, massive PowerPoint decks like you know, migrating through multiple committees, finally getting filtered down into a few key areas. But when those key areas come up, literally the business will say, we need to address those. Um, and, and that's the whack-a-mole instead of a, like a programmatic view. Because what we try to preach in our network is you got to take a programmatic view. And all, and all of our CISOs try to do this. Unfortunately, they don't always have control of that. Often the business will come back and say, well, the risk right now is we haven't encrypted everything. Encrypt everything. Or the risk right now is we don't know how to control privileged identities. Go fix that problem. And that's the whack-a-mole. And that's where you, you leave yourself open and then when we don't have good control, like you said at the beginning, on the application side, when we're building all this stuff and moving it around, and it's you know beyond the developer side too, you've also got the other scary part is us as business users are starting to do a lot of shadow IT. And that's just as scary and uncontrolled as, you know, there's two sides of this. It's kind of development teams, building apps, putting them out in different clouds, using a lot of SaaS products like uh, GitHub and Jira and all the other stuff, the, the tools that are out there. And then now the common business unit, the dummy like me, I mean, I can light up anything, anytime just about. And, you know, I think one CISO told me recently they did an audit of uh, Shadow IT using a CASB product. Mm -hmm. They had 7,500 applications in use. Right. Tell me how you, uh, that you what do you think is going to happen when audit sees that? Yes, they're going to be very, very, very <laughs> that, very That's very a problem, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, and that's kind of like, it kind of comes back to like, when you say this 7,500, like, so let's flip that around, right? A little bit. It's like, you know, the reason today is kind of, as we've been talking, is that like security often is an add-on, but imagine a world where like the 7,500 applications, because they're all written by developers somewhere, right? Imagine that like the first principles of all of those applications was like, yeah, every application has encrypted data, right? Every application I can add audit rules, like whoever's maintaining these, right? Because that's just what we do. Because, you know, for example, like we know applications, people are building applications. The application has to be available, has to be up and running, right? right? Like no one's like, well, it's fine. It works like half the time, especially because <laughs> everyone knows no one will use their application. But like, so there, there's an, an innate understanding that like we can't put an application out that like is constantly down, right? Or we won't be in business. And I think you need to think, I would like, everyone to think the same way about like, we can't put out an application that's inherently uh, insecure. Now we're not there today, right? Right. That, that would be the world we want to get to where people understand 
that these applications are built by developers who are doing their job and they're building security into it. Right. It's all, but it's all incentives, right? The reason True. you have the availability, we, we're good at that, is because if it's down, we lose business. Yep. To date, most companies that have had problems with security, they might have a blip in their business, like Target did, mm-hmm. or you know some of the other guys. But for the most part, it wasn't a company-ending moment. It depends what industry you're in. There are probably people out there that are industries where the data is so valuable that if they had a breach, you know, it literally could it could be a company-ending moment. But, you know, many of the folks aren't under that. And like you said, we need to change that mindset. You know, that's where I go back to GDPR. It's certainly changing the mindset on the way we we have to handle personal data. Because if you guys haven't taken a look at this, there are humongous fines. And this thing goes live May 2018. And we're talking 20 million euros or 4% of your annual revenue is a potential fine if you have a major privacy issue with uh, personal data. So if you're dealing with EU citizen data, guys, I would get to know GDPR. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there is, you know, that's always the question is like how big is the fine going to be? How much trouble are you going to get? But I, I kind of come back to also, you know, more simple, like to your thing around incentives. Like, hey, you know, what my biggest incentive is in my life is I want to make my life easier, right? And I and think, you know, and we can kind of joke sometimes, like, you know, we're all lazy to some degree. So, um, you know, DevOps in some respects is, is a response to like, man, I, I was, everyone was spending too much time firefighting outages, right? So we've, let's find a way to work better together. And I think the same thing can be here. Like if you think of this stuff up front, like data encryption, right, and actually taking precautions and being able to audit stuff up front, then it's, much, it's just going to make your life easier, right? You don't have to spend all this time worrying about like this audit spreadsheet because you're just it's built into your day-to-day life so yeah like I, w- I wish we were all motivated by the potential of a huge business fine but if that's not enough and not you know I, I understand the motivation there is like just make your own life easier right just do these things up front right it's not I think people are kind of get scared off by it that it's going to take so much time and so much effort but like everything in life put a little upfront thinking in it it's going to make your life a lot easier down the road yeah, it's, well, like I said, we, we, you and I are both huge fans of the book uh, Freakonomics, you know, and the, the author often jokes that he should have called that book, you know, the Incentive, law of yeah. incentives or, or whatever the case may be. So it's really just at the end of the day, I mean, your business has a risk tolerance. You need to understand what that is through through your management and your teams. And that's, you know, really how you build your apps to, to that risk tolerance. And I think that's the key. And that's what audit's going to audit against, too. They're going to audit against that risk tolerance. And that's what the CISO is trying to implement also, a certain level of risk tolerance. Because as one of my CISOs said to me once, he was joking, our, our data is so valuable that literally we could spend every dollar of profit on security, but we don't have a business at that point. Right. So you have to take some level of risk. I, I often think of cyber security. Now, don't get this confused with the cyber insurance industry. There's a whole industry that offers <laughs> cyber insurance. But I often think of what our CISOs do is when they go to their boards and ask for budget, that's the insurance policy the business is taking for risk for that year. How much – we're going to take a $4 million insurance policy, a $10 million, a twenty, whatever. The size of the business will often dictate that too and the risk. But that's what it is. That, that budget that that CISO has for the year is, in essence, the insurance policy against the risk that they believe they have. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Hopefully they're mostly right. You know, we, we read, you know, like everything with the press, we read about all the bad breaches and things that happen. The good news is more, uh, more of it's being done right than wrong. But there's still gaps out there. You know, the, the Equifax thing, again, called into, you know, question, you know, vulnerability management, patch management. Like you said, processes that, I frankly, have been around for a long time, right? 
tools that have been around for a long time. And yet we still mess up, I guess, sometimes on these basics, but they're not always easy either. As you got, as you know, patching an old system, that's another one. I'd say my, a lot of the guys on here may be working on new things, but the legacy systems scare uh, the CISOs quite a bit because they're very often difficult to patch. Um, sometimes they're like a system or application that does one purposeful thing and you can't get rid of it. Because I joke with my CISOs all the time, and you're, I think your members or your folks on here will love this. I say get rid of it as many of those things as you can and move it to the cloud. Go new. You know, you know, put all the right things in place, but that's always easier said than done. That's my rule of thumb. Get rid of these legacy apps and replace it with something either that's, you know, cloud application already or something that you guys can build and control and AWS or one of the other clouds out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're kind of going right where I think the industry's going. It's certainly something we talked a lot about this year around, you know, obviously containers, container orchestration and like actually taking, you know, there's unfortunately like everyone's using complicated language. They often call it like, technology modernization efforts or all these other things. But all it really means is like, hey, let's go in the closet and get the old servers that no one's been looking at. Let's grab those things. Let's maybe throw them in a container and and take the time and then put them up uh, in the cloud. And, you know, what is that going to do? One, it gets rid of these ancient servers. Right. Two, it's going to make sure that we actually do know how to update this. And then three, it's just going to make it a lot more secure. So, again, I know everyone's always, you know, interested in, like, how to use containers and what to do. And obviously moving applications – especially the legacy ones off and spending the time, right. It's going to make everybody's life a lot easier. So certainly. So let's talk about, you know, I, I, the thing we haven't talked about is sort of like the, this, and we did this intentionally, right. It's like the sexy part of security that makes the news right? Right. is like perimeter attacks, like defending your perimeter, like nation state attacks and things like that. And it's important. We're going to talk about it here, but the thing I, I want people to leave this with, I guess my plea, is like all the stuff we've talked about so far is just stuff that you can do on your own. You can encrypt the data on your own, right? You can go out. You can make sure that you can do audits on your own. You can make sure your patching process, all of this on your own. Like you don't have to uh, store uh, passwords as plain text in some MySQL database. These are all the things that you can do on your own. And if you've done all of them, fantastic. Now, there is, and I think this gets back to your thing about risk. Yes, there in the news, there's always some exciting way that some nation state <laughs> is attacking someone, right? And this is, comes back to, like, you should take some precautions. I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything, but I do think it comes back to risk. Like, I'll just use myself as an example. If the state, if the state of China decides to, like, attack my own personal IT here at this house, they're going to win. <laughs> you know, they're going to win. They're they're going to do it. It probably won't even be that hard, right, for them. But you know, there's a risk tolerance. Like I, I'm not a high priority target, and so therefore, there's like a limit to like what I'm going to do. But I've taken some basic things, right? I hope I have. Right? I've done some basic things. So when you're talking about perimeter defense, which I think goes all the way up from like a you know the quote unquote script kitty all the way up to like sophisticated nation state attacks from foreign. Uh, nations working against you, like how do CISOs think about that and what are some of the ways that they're trying to prevent that? Yeah, definitely. Well, one, you, you brought up a funny thing that I call, uh, and I say this often in our network, I call it the rule of zebras. And because my daughter loves zebras, and uh, if you know about, much about zebras, they have stripes for a reason. It's be, and when they run in a pack, the stripes all kind of get intermingled and mess up like a cheetah's eyes. The cheetah can't really focus. There's nothing to pick off because it just sees this moving set of set of stripes. But which which part of the pack does the, does the cheetah capable of picking off? 
the the laggard, right? The last zebra that's by themselves and isn't moving that fast. So they go after that zebra. Same thing in cybersecurity. You need to put in place enough security to be at least benchmark level of the companies in your industry to where you're, you know, you're not an easy target. I mean, clearly, if you can put more budget into that, that's great and be at the leading part of the pack. But I guess what my rule of thumb is, again, don't be the laggard, because like you said, the, the, the nation states, uh, the well-organized cr- criminals, they go after the folks that are easy targets, because also we're in a very interconnected world. They can move from one to another sometimes, right? They can, you know, the biggest risk right now, frankly, you're asking about perimeter. The biggest risk is outside the perimeter. It's the it's the third party agreements. Again, our arrangements with cloud apps, and it's not what the AWS is the world. Again, go back to I said there was like over seven thousand apps that somebody's using. I guarantee you, some of those apps are highly insecure. And that's the entry point in. They get into that, then they get in. They get through the perimeter. Why? Because they look like a normal user. What the bad guys are really doing these days is tr- is they can get it, they, they want to get inside your perimeter. The way they do it is to look like one of you, frankly. They look like any of us. Look like a normal user. Because our defenses aren't that good. Once we see it's you and you've logged in and you've authenticated, and by the way, you're probably overprivileged. Frankly, if I looked at any of you guys out there, your privileges right. in your company, I guarantee every, every you have weight. You. You, you're, not, you're not hitting the rule of what's called least privileged access. You're probably yes. over-accessed. That's what the cyber uh, criminals in the nation states prey on, right? So they, they get around the perimeter defenses pretty easy these days, frankly, because all they have to do is find an entry point, whether it's a, ro- whether it's a, a known endpoint. You know, again, why has endpoint security gotten so hot? Because they're all over the place, and that's where uh, the bad guys go. Bad guys use identity. We both know phishing is huge. And let's face it, all of us are prey to phishing. I mean, I've seen phishing attacks that, to me, I, there was one for Starbucks that – I did not fall prey to, luckily, but I mean, the the phishing attack was so sophisticated and so good, I kept asking myself, is that cup of coffee really worth giving up my credentials? I mean, I literally was going through that. It was saying, we're going to cut off your mobile application unless you change your credentials. But I just didn't believe uh, Starbucks would actually send me an email like that. But it looked perfect. Mm -hmm. And it, it looked like it was resolving back, you know, but it wasn't Starbucks. Later on, they had a breach where people were stealing out of the mobile app, um, you know, your gift cards, basically yep. the money inside the mobile app themselves. They oh, were getting, right. They it. were giving, getting people to give their credentials through that and phishing. You go get your money, your coffee money. Yeah, exactly. I would have lost out of my, in, you know, in my case, iced tea, but um, you know, these are very sophisticated, but the guys, I mean, the, everybody has perimeter defense already. They feel pretty good about that. What they're scared about is the other things you know, the top projects are the endpoints, the the identities themselves privileged identities scare the heck out of everybody because it's kind of this idea of i'm going to call it insider threat but it may not necessarily be me or you but it's somebody that has now spoofed me or you they look like me and you and they're doing things on with our credentials because again they're overprivileged and all they have to do is start to move around these guys are the patient ones will move around for years like i said i believe this equifax thing you know, we can all put in credit freezes in place and all this stuff, and we probably will. And that'll last, what, 90 days or a year. These guys aren't dumb. Right. It'll and they're going to wait us out like 12 months from now, 18 months from now, 24 months from now. The smart criminals and smart nation states wait you out. The dumb ones are the easier ones to catch. They're greedy, right? They right. want they want instant gratification. So they do get caught. But the harder ones are these guys that will wait you out. And I think, you know, what you hit on there. Again, because I think this kind of comes back to there is a lot of stuff and there's a lot of like next generation firewalls yep. and a lot of ways to detect things. But again, like 
you can put all that in place and you should, and, and you absolutely should. And there's lots of vendors that will help you do that. Um, but the other thing that you can do, and you hit on it, was, hey, let's just look at what access people have, right? So this kind of comes back to auditing. So you're building a new application, and you know, not only, you know, maybe we should think about like externalizing the actual login, right? The actual authentication piece of that. Maybe you're gonna use LDAP, maybe you're gonna use some corporate other thing. But then when you're starting to actually give you know, the authorization side of that. Like, what can people do in your application? And you're going to assign some, like, form of roles or privileges, and there's lots of different ways to do it. Like, you really want to make it easy to audit what those people are doing, right? I mean, I, you know, there's lots of different tools, right? Today, this is mostly, like, a third-party thing. You have a third-party tool, and then, you know, you kind of, like, ask the application, like, who has access to what? And then you actually sit down, and usually you identify what are, like, really, um, what kind of access is concerning. But, a couple of things I think people can do. Like one is like when you're building out an application, think that way. Think that like, okay, I'm going to have some kind of rights and permissions model. I want to make it easy for people to audit, right, what's actually there. I want to make it easy uh, to actually take away access when people uh, no longer need it. And right. that's like the number one thing that I would love to see people do. Like we have so much talk about um, artificial intelligence and really I think most people mean like machine learning and things like that <laughs> but really what it matters we don't, we're, I'm not sure we know what they mean I'm not sure right. they know well, what they mean either one but. part we do know one, this is a very easy case one thing you, anyone I think a very simple AI problem would be like hey let's write some algorithms to like look at all the access people have right and then what they're actually using and I mean you can imagine a world like where we're just dynamically giving people, and we kind of see this with privileged identity, but go further, right? Like most of the time when I log into my bank account, and maybe this is like revealing too much about me, like I'm just checking the balance, just like did stuff happen, right? Like that's really, and like, so like kind of think of that most of the time when I log in, I just need read access. I don't even need to transfer money. Right. right? And then when I do, like, you know, and I know there is, you know, banking is probably the closest on this, right? Because they, they have, they often call this fraud detection, but I, I think it could just apply to anything. It's like they're looking at, like, if I do a high-value transaction, you know, trans for a couple hundred dollars, not a big deal. They probably do it. But, like, when you get to, you know, maybe thousands of dollars or something that looks out of the ordinator, ordinary, they'll stop you, right? Or then they'll ask for another question or they'll ask you to, like, do some uh, two-factor authentication and things like that. So there's no reason that this same mentality – it doesn't have to just be called fraud, and it doesn't have to just right. live in – uh, financial applications like the same thing with email, the same thing with your uh, your online storage, whether it be Dropbox or Box or anything. So I think just being in the mindset as I'm building an application that and maybe that's not a day one thing, but like I've gonna think about the potential permissions that I'm gonna let people do, and at one day I may even start to like dynamically assign and remove permissions based on what people are doing because we kind of come back to. Like we are the problem. Human beings are the problem. Right. This is like I like I feel like I'm very aware of security, and I have fallen for phishing. I've fallen for all of it. Like right. there's like you. Everyone has a weak moment. Everyone has a weak moment when you're just your guard is not up. So like, what can the technology do? And this is a place again where we don't have to like go research all these complicated ways that people are going to attack us with malware. Right. We could just look at like, hey. Maybe I can lock these accounts down even more right? yeah, well, all the time. Well, doing the – I mean like you said, Brandon, it goes back to doing the simpler things, the basic things, uh, you know, and trying to be re not reactive but proactive. I mean right now security is very reactive. It's kind of after the fact. Like you said, we look at stuff after it's kind of occurred. We audit. What's the whole idea of audit? It's kind of after the fact. 
how can we build a, you know, I'd encourage the folks on here today. How do we build more of these security thought processes, like you said, into what we do up front, finding ways to use, uh, you know, a big area of uh, in security right now is user and entity behavior analytics, you know, the, the classic four letter acronym UEBA. But it's trying to look at what people are doing, trying to, like you said, with machine learning and other tools, baseline what users do. If you could, you know, you know who you want to use your application or service, or hopefully you do. You've written, like you said, user stories. You've probably, you know, written buyer personas and all kinds of junk to to know what, what this application and service is for. If you do... You can also start to think of that from a security perspective. What's normal usage of this application and service? What does the user, what would they normally do? And, you know, you don't have to take all this on, by the way, by yourself. You can work with your security team on this. But the idea would be as much of that tooling that's, you know, instrumentation you build into the application as possible up front, it's just going to make it easier when later, if you do have to put a security tool on top, that your application is designed in a way where it just integrates automatically into that kind of thinking. Oh, I can take all the data and move it to my UEBA application or my security, uh, you know, event management tool or whatever, because it, you designed it that way. You made it easy for security to actually help you monitor your application, help you keep it secure and all that stuff. So I, again, I know this stuff is always easier said than done, but if I had one leaving point for you guys today is, you know, get to know your security folks, your CISO particularly, uh, and, you know, work with them on how you make your applications as secure as possible within budget. We understand budget and time yeah, and constraints time, yeah. and, and do that as much as you can up front, realizing you're not going to get it all done. That's OK. Uh, but, you know, what gaps maybe you have even identifying them up front and, and working with the security team to help close those, because then you're safe from the beginning as opposed to. The kind of the, you know the oh shit moment. Oh my goodness, we were we're messed up here, and now we're, now we've got to figure this out. And no, that we both know the time and cost on that is ridiculous compared to what the time we can spend up front. I like it. Well, I think we've successfully fixed all security problems, <laughs> and now we've uh, brought together the DevOps community and the security community. So next year, I expect there to be no security breaches. Like we've done, <laughs> we've done, we've done all the work for everybody. No, but all, in all seriousness, like I think one thing an immediate action that everybody on this can do and something that I know would help uh, Andy was that if you know who your CISO is in your organization or you know who your security people are, your, your security managers, right? You ought to uh, send them over and Andy, they can check out uh, your thing at what's the uh, yeah, what, hold of you. Uh, we are CISOexecnet.com. So uh, like we mentioned that for an organization of uh, CISOs across the United States, uh, it's a membership association. Uh, you are vetted. Uh, it's no cost, free, but right? free to no join, cost. Right? But you do have to be the the top leader of your organization that owns the kind of cybersecurity program. And uh, if you're interested, uh, your CISO is interested, send them my way. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it's like it's CISO. It's kind of like uh, DevOps days for CISOs, but but like any good security organization, there's there's some. Uh, some validation of it. It's not just, you know, just random people. Right. So uh, I do. And I think, you know, any, any of your security leaders in your organization, I think would benefit if they want to hear discussions like this, they want to hear about what other CISOs are doing um, and just get ideas. Right. And, and hopefully, and also meet some new people. Right. And they're, uh, and that's always important to you. Like they can trade ideas, believe it or not, just like developers trade ideas, uh, CISOs trade ideas. They actually trade. Uh, they actually trade a lot of ideas. This is hard stuff. Just like you guys, you guys are trying to solve really intricate problems. Somebody's probably uh, paved that path before, and you can learn from them. Uh, and that's what we do with our network. We try to get folks together to maybe share a best practice, a process, a tool, 
something that will help someone else before uh, the bad moment in my, my world with my CISOs is they spend a lot of money on a tool. They implement it. It fails that, you know, that's not as bad as that's not as bad as a breach, but it's not, it's not a great day at the office. Fantastic. All right. Well, the other thing is uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed this episode. Uh, As always, you can uh, visit us at uh, softwaredefinedtalk.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. We're actually publishing that now. You can also, if you're interested uh, and you haven't already, sign up at Patreon for the Exegesis podcast and you'll get to hear even more of us. And then uh, join us in Slack, right? We've got uh, the Slack community and thanks to uh, no SSH uh, JJ, it's easy to sign up. So go to softwaredefinedtalk.com and sign up there. And if you find me there in Slack, send me your address. I'll send you a sticker. Send a lot of people stickers this week. I've even seen some on Twitter. So that's exciting. And with that, I want everyone to have a safe and happy holidays, and we will see you next year.